Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, Pulitzer Prize winning author from Western Mass, Tracy Kidder, on his new book, Rough Sleepers. He'll be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley next week. And it's Live Music Friday. Our guests in studio, sort of, are Flora Reed and Philip Price from the Winter Pills. But first... Depending on where we're at, we duck back in a corner or in a basement. No, 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 no. When we go to State Street, we go to the basement. But with this new show covering the the breadth and depth of the 413, we want to taste in all sorts of different locations, and we're here in Lennox. What's your name? Joe Nijem. And what's your name? Oh, I'm Xavier. Xavier Lederon. This is Nijem's Wine Cellars. And uh, we're in Lennox and we're in Stockbridge. It's fun to taste in the Berkshires. The I know, time. it's our first time in the Berkshires tasting things. We've been very 91-centric, so yeah. I was really adamant about trying to find a place in the Berkshires that we could taste. It's a nice ride out here and everything. Big yeah, shout out to our director, Tony Dunn, for setting all this up. The concept of our wine tasting in the Wine Thunderdome, two wines enter, one wine leaves. Two men enter, one man leaves. We taste two wines, we compare and contrast them, and we decide if we had to only choose one to go home with, which one it would be. And what we're doing, Xavier, that is interesting with this here at Nee James in Lennox is that you have brought us the wines blind. Yes. So I figure the best way to make decision on wine versus, you know, what what's better than others or what's it's to taste them blind because we are otherwise full of prejudice how the label look like. So this way they are as they are in your mouth and then you you just can describe it. That accent. Boston area? Yes. <laughs> the, yeah, the west part of the Boston area has the channel. Where are you from, really, originally? Paris and Brittany over in France. Uh-huh. But so, I've been here 25 years, so. But I kept the accent. I, yeah. It helps in the it business. It sells more wine. <laughs> <laughs> from Brittany, oh, I want to bend your ear about cider. Oh, cider. Yeah. We do have very nice dry cider in Brittany. Growing up in Paris, did you were you ensconced in the wine world from Jump Street? Like, did you grow up in wine, or is it something you developed I over here? I actually realized I grew up in wine when I I move into this country, the knowledge of what a good one is versus a wine that is not as good is, mm-hmm. is kind of pretty well spread in French families. Uh-huh. So you, you know, you just realize that you know more than average. And then when you're French, you realize people accept, expect you to know more than average. <laughs> you quickly learn because you don't want to look too dummy. And what about you, Joe? How did you get into the world of wine? Uh, I got into the world of wine um, more than 40 years ago um, in Stockbridge, uh-huh. where first our original wine store is still uh it was a just a liquor store but late 70s until today my family was in wine my parents bought uh, a store in stockbridge and uh, over the years my brother and i developed it, it into a three-store group and wine was um the growth area although we have all alcoholic beverages and the uh, and the foods and the cheeses but wine is really the most interesting part your program actually is uh is is interesting because this makes it fun and to do a a focused blind tasting of of wines at competition and demystifying some of the things everybody thinks wine is this exactly. fancy highfalutin thing it's a farm product it's yes. it's, it's grape juice and like the idea of demystified being french and uh, people are always like are afraid of french wine yeah. or you know italian or german they can even read the label so it's good to just remind people it's only it's only wine okay hey, just just chill yes <laughs> always chill even your reds and we're kind of letting these white wines unchill warm up a little bit yes so a white wine don't want to be drink cold unless it's maybe your vino verde or something Mm. extremely refreshing those deserve to warm up to get some more aroma this is our first white tasting i believe so i'm glad we brought it uh, (laughs) it's also the first warmest day in the berkshires (laughs) 
This is the one number one. This wine's golden in color. It feel, looks a little bit even in the glass, somewhat viscous. Unctuous. There's a little honey thing happening oh, on yeah. the nose. Oh, you guys are good, huh? Okay. So Seems you were talking about um, what is coming into those wines, or both white wine, okay? If you don't see the color, you shouldn't drink more. <laughs> and I do wine blind tasting for fun with friends. Yeah. Uh, and we always ask, okay, where the wine come from and what varietal it is and eventually how old the wine is. Mm -hmm. Those three things are not too hard to figure out when you're in the wine business, even you've been testing wine. And we most of the time are wrong, but we're <laughs> most of the time not too far from what it is. Hey, cheers. 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 Salud. Cheers. 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 To spring. To spring. Yeah. Thoughts, Khalees? This is fun. That honey thing still stays, but like you get a little bit of apple, like you get a little bit of like almost honeysuckle leaf flowers, mm -hmm. like, but it dances. There's a lot of melon, I think, in this. Mm -hmm. um, there's some real ripe fruit. Uh, good acidity on the finish yeah. so that you're left yeah. with a clean palate. Rich uh, fruit concentration and yet some very bright notes that make it fresh right, and brisk. Right. Yeah. yeah, it suggests sweetness, yet you're not left with residual sugar. Like a lot, of people, a lot of people will confuse sweet with uh, fruit-forward wine, right. so sometimes a dry wine has a fruit-forward profile, especially the one from the New World, American, you know, South America. The fruitness will come across as sweetness, and people are prone to say, oh, it's a sweet one. Well, it's definitely fruity, fruity, but not sweet. Maybe we should hold this aside now and come back to it. Love it. So, so this different nose. Yeah, the second oh, yeah. wine is a, a a much lighter color, more straw color. While the but other one, but it's got a little funk on it. Good funk or bad funk? I know. Oh no, good funk. This one is a lot less fruit forward. It's more reserved than the okay. other one. Yeah. So yeah. it's got some of those floral notes, but not big honeysuckle like yeah, floral right. notes. Yeah, mm -hmm. good point. Good point. I do feel a lot more minerality in oh, this. Oh, yeah. definitely you true. You feel that flintiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. What would you pair it with, food wise? Seafood? Yeah, that's what I, I would love something, it. maybe a very a saltier seafood, maybe oysters, and some sort of even like fried clams at a clam shack. This right? would be great. Sure, you know? yeah. There's enough acidity. It's dry. It would kind of um, work against that uh, fried food. Fried what about food? you, <laughs> Joe, from Nijang in uh, uh, Lennox here? Yeah, I would um, have this with um, all kinds of vegetarian fare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This could um, work well with cheeses. The nice camembert in this there. Is, nice what I was saying, like, this room smells like really good soft cheese, and this wine really works with the smell of this room. Yeah. So I was mm. thinking, like, triple totally. crown. <laughs> if you serve some uh, some fish, it will come as lemon, you know, you, or lobster. You drink this with oh. lobster. It's like putting a little bit of lemon on your lobster. That's the way Power we Power of suggestion. It's just, I can taste it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing. That's why wines like the are often used as a aperitif. It piques your appetite. It literally makes your mouth yeah, water. One of the ways to tell how wine, acidic a wine is is to open your mouth and lean over and see how much drool comes out. Right. Of course, they were not filming, huh? <laughs> Don't drool. I just, oh, let me them. bring the bucket. We want them to let us come back. Don't drool. Sorry, I drooled all over your Lennox floor. Well, these are both excellent. I have my thoughts as to what they both are. Now we're talking. Well, should we wait till Joe comes back? Uh, is he coming back? If you want, yeah, he's coming back. I think he was getting excited. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited Joe, he ran away. Well, Joe being from a Lebanese family, they're very hospitable, okay? So they always, if you start opening wine, he's bringing food. Oh, 
That's the leave. All you did, move. all you had to do was mention the soft cheeses, and you ran out and got them. Something. Oh my word! Thank you. We might have to pour more wine too. What a hard job we have, Khalees. It's so hard. See, the thing about wine tasting too is like both Khalees and my first inclination was to smell the cheese. Most people just shove stuff into their face. But the more you get used to like the the finesse of trying to figure things out about wine and taste, you go to you go for a walk in the woods and you're like, oh, I smell the real honeysuckle. And yeah, I'm glad you bring this point because uh, wine have three elements, okay? And one of the major elements of wine is aroma. And we do not give enough credit to our nose and to the aroma. Oh my God, it's so good with this cheese. The second wine is like. This is also the reason why you do not drink white wine cold. The colder a thing is, the less you can smell it. It's that's just right. science. Well, yeah, the molecules that, are moving exactly slower. Yeah. Yeah, so when Coors tight. puts an ad out that says it's the coldest beer in the world, yeah, you're like, that's wow. because they don't want wow. you to taste it. Exactly. Yeah. The banquet beer. As usual in my history of wine tasting experiments, the cheese is almost always the best thing. <laughs> this is perfect. Oh. It is perfect. Before we come up with what wine we like best here at Nee James Wine in Lennox with Joe and Xavier, let's guess what we think the wines are because we've tasted them all blind. I'm not going to be good I'm, at this. Don't worry about it. You want me to just well, guess? You can guess. Is the first wine New World? No. 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 Wow. Is oh, it a please. Chardonnay? It, oh, wow. Boom. Bingo. So it is a Chardonnay. <laughs> the first wine is a Chardonnay. Hence, maybe the fact that you think it was New World, but it's from Greece. Wow. See, so you're trying it's to trick us. Okay. The... No, that's what I was like. So that's what I was thinking. Oh, that's thinking. what like, you wanted to say, but you couldn't like, remember I'm the like, name of the country? Tastes, what it tastes similarly to is that I got a chance to taste, I can't remember if it was Moldovian or Slovakian wines yeah, yeah. recently, and yeah. this shares a lot of those characteristics yeah. that they had in their white. This is a Greek <laughs> wine from the uh, Skouras uh, winery in Peloponnese. But interesting that you were mentioning Moldova, because in this month our feature is a particular region, and it's Eastern Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean, which is why Greece is uh, among these. So I may have Greece is the word. Greece is the word. Okay, so then the mystery is second wine, not Chardonnay. The second one is not Chardonnay. No. But it's Old World. It is Old World. Is it French? It is not French. No. Is this like a weird Italian white varietal? No, I know huh? those ones are. When I don't know a wine, I'm like, I had something weird from Italy. They, they can come up with anything, those guys. They'll uh, call it a grape. They'll call it a place. They'll call it a grape yeah. named after and a place. And they will make a low after it, and they will sell it. Right. Eastern European wine. It's a very tall that is known more for their sweet wine. Have you heard about the Tokai? Oh! Oh my. Yeah, <laughs> the sweet white wine from Hungary. Yes. yes. Counterpart of the Sautern over in yes. Bordeaux. Sweet Excellent, delicious, sweet wine. Like, you think you don't like sweet wines? Yeah, have, yeah, have, those, a toka, yeah, yeah, have a tokai. Yeah, Have a sautern. Yeah. Your, your life will be changed. Right on. Well, they right use that. the grape ferment to make this uh, sweet wine that is sweet due to uh, a, a noble rot, okay? Yeah. Which uh, is my band name. <laughs> noble rot. <laughs> Not, I don't have a band yet, but when I do, it'll be called that. Excellent! That grape, if you harvest it before it gets uh, moldy to make the sweet wine. Which is can... awesome, by the way. It's not a bad thing. It's yeah. a great thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can make 
regular white wine. And so this is a dry ferment. What oh. I like about it, the soil is also volcanic. And that's um, where the minerals came from, mm -hmm. the flint. Yeah, so this is an exciting wine because I think it's unusual and yet it's fun. And it stays affordable as well. From Hungary. Did yeah. we get to that? Hungary, yeah. 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 So it made me hungry when I was drinking it. Yeah, there we go. Two one man Officially declare. Okay, I love both of these, but this ferment is just, it keeps giving. The Hungarian ferment is Khaleesi's vote. Xavier? I do like the ferment the best. Joe? <laughs> have to pick one to take home today. Uh, I would drink the Greek Chardonnay. Wow. I like a white wine that has a little bit of age, a little maturity. I have a lot of Greek friends. If I don't pick the Greek wine, they'll come after yeah, they me come with after knives. You. Yeah, right. Yes. I, again, the cheese is the overall winner of everything. <laughs> Always, don't whenever you, you wine taste. Don't say that. But I'm going with the ferment. My kind of acidity, my kind of reserved fruit. I'm a Francophile mm -hmm. by and large when it comes to wine uh, in my own personal palate. So I was tricked into believing it could sure be French. A Hungarian weirdo grape that not a lot of people drink very frequently. Mm -hmm. Not gonna break the bank. But do no. not. It may literally come home with me after this. I do believe not it. Do underestimate will. how much we like this Chardonnay. Right. This Chardonnay was really, really cool. Like that's a hard decision yeah. again. And again. it's a great <laughs> alternative from uh, a classic buttery, creamy, oaky Chardonnay, yeah. and yet. It's also an alternative from a Burgundy Chardonnay. Yeah, it's a it's the gateway drug between uh, California yeah. and Burgundy. Yeah, for me, I'll bring both, to be honest. But you know, if... they're reasonably <laughs> priced. How much are they? And then I'll bleep it out or oh, code it. Like... Almost a Tubman. Almost mm. a Tubman. <laughs> and that's before the discount that New James always is willing to give every month. We feature an area and. And by the bottle, we'll give you a discount. So you come every month, you get something exciting to discover. Yeah. I can't tell you to do that, but they can. <laughs> we don't need another Pino. Thanks again to Joe Nijame and Xavier Letteron at Nijame's Wine in Lennox. Coming up, Tracy Kidder on his new book, Rough Sleepers. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Our guest is Pulitzer Prize winning author Tracy Kidder. He'll be at an in-person event at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley this coming Tuesday. Let's start with him reading from his new book, Rough Sleepers. And a warning, there is talk of suicidal ideation in this part of the book. This is about the early days of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. And Jim O'Connell, who was the founding physician, it was obvious that he and his colleagues weren't addressing the many root causes of their patients' misery, but they were trying to figure out how to ameliorate some of the deepest suffering that lurked in the city. How do you treat HIV in a person who has no place to live? How do you treat diabetes in patients who can't even find their next meals? How do you treat physical illnesses in mentally ill patients and patients whose days and nights are ruled by the consumption of alcohol the search for narcotics. At medical school, questions like those hadn't come up. He was discovering the role of homelessness doctor with a lot of help from Barbara McGinnis. What did continuity of care actually mean in doctoring homeless people? Around the time when Barbara let him use his stethoscope again, he found himself in an exam room at the Pine Street Shelters Clinic with a patient seemingly in crisis. The man, Bill, was weeping, saying, I'm going to kill myself. The guy seemed genuinely desperate. Jim would have known what to do at Mass General, but he didn't hear. He hurried out of the room to find Barbara and asked her, what's the process when you think someone's really suicidal? She led Jim back to the exam room. What's going on, she asked Bill. Bill's thinking of hurting himself, said Jim. Then Barbara sat down 
and leveled her gaze at the patient. Bill, you know we don't use talk like that around here. If you're going to use that kind of language, I need you to go outside and talk in the alleyway. When you come in here, you're not suicidal. Jim was astonished. He couldn't imagine talking to a patient that way, especially one threatening suicide. And then Bill cleared up the whole matter. Oh, okay, Barbara, I'm sorry, I'll be okay. The explanation was plain. The clinic did, of course, have a protocol for managing suicide threats. Indeed, Barbara was known for sniffing out the real cases, including those who made no threats. But she had known Bill for a long time, and she knew he talked this way periodically, and she understood that he didn't intend to harm himself this time either. Continuity of care in this context was a transaction. It was important that homeless people know their physicians well enough to trust them, and it was vital that the physicians and nurses spend the time it took to know each patient. That was Tracy Kidder reading from Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. Tracy Kidder is a literary journalist who won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1981 book, Soul of a New Machine. He famously chronicled the work of Dr. Paul Farmer in 2003 with his book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. That book traces the life of physician Paul Farmer with a focus on his work fighting tuberculosis in Haiti, Peru, and Russia. With his new book, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people, he follows another doctor through the streets of Boston who graduated from Harvard Medical School and was nearing the end of his residency at Massachusetts General Hospital when he made a decision to spend a year helping to create an organization to bring health care to homeless citizens. That year turned into a career. Tracy Kidder will be doing an in-person reading on Tuesday, April 18th, 7 p.m. at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. And Tracy Kidder joins us from his home in Western Mass right now. Thank you so much, Tracy Kidder. You're welcome. We spoke years ago on my former radio show after the Haitian earthquake. And you, as I mentioned, are what people refer to as a literary journalist. So you write these incredible and incredibly compelling books, many of which deal with the kind of characters like Dr. Paul Farmer in Mountains Beyond Mountains and Dr. Jim O'Connell, who are working with marginalized communities whose situations, like everybody's situation, frankly, are extremely nuanced. But what is it that draws you to characters like a Dr. Paul Farmer or like a Dr. Jim O'Connell? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, but, you know, I, I did somewhere along the line set the goal for myself to write about virtue in the world. I mean, I think it's, it can be hard to do, perhaps easier than vice, except that if, you, if you're going to spend years with a, a person the way I typically do, it wouldn't be much fun to, to hang out with a really nasty person, I guess. I don't know. I just think the cynics among us, particularly in the, the journalism trade, you know, they miss a whole part of the world. And the other thing about people like Jim and Paul is that they're, they're not otherworldly. They have their faults. I think most people do have at least some altruistic tendencies. <laughs> and uh, they, they just happen to have more than others, I suppose. Jim did not, you know, set out to, to be a doctor to homeless people. He became a doctor pretty late at 30. He went to medical school at 30, and then he went to Harvard Medical School. He went to, he was very good at this stuff. He was a very smart guy, and he did very well. And he had residency at Mass General, uh, which is top of the line, and then was accepted for a, a fellowship at Sloan Kettering in New York. He was going to be, be an oncologist. 
and they got waylaid by some eminent doctors at Mass General in, in the mid 80s, 1980s, when homelessness had really begun. What's called the new wave of homelessness had really begun to be noticed, uh, you know, in places like emergency rooms and so on. Boston was one of the cities applying for grants to start these healthcare for the homeless programs. They needed a doctor. And Jim, they couldn't find one, so they asked Jim if he wouldn't, these, these eminent, these eminence grees asked Jim if he wouldn't do it for just a year. And, you know, Jim got hooked. Dr. Jim is still doing it today, and you have actually done a bunch of book readings with Dr. Jim O'Connell uh, since the yeah. book's launch, right? Yes. It's incredible to hear his story. And you were mentioning he has his faults, um, but when you go through the pages of Rough Sleepers, and we're speaking with Tracy Kidder, the author of the book, who will be at the Odyssey Bookshop, in South Hadley on Tuesday, April 18th. Everyone that you chronicle in the book sort of lionizes Dr. Jim as a saint, including a lot of the homeless people that he's working with. Yeah, and, and, and you have a couple glimpses of him in, in what feels like a mood, perhaps. But, <laughs> but what, I, what I kept thinking about while reading this book, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with the new television show, Ted Lasso, but the character of Ted Lasso is this soccer coach who is so kind, but there's, there is something brewing in, underneath it all, and yet he puts this veneer of kindness out all the time. And I kept the mm -hmm. same vibe from Dr. Jim O'Connell. Where you're almost reminded of Kihei Kwan's character from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, where kindness well, is what you fight with. Yeah, yeah, kindness is what you fight with. Jim is uh, self-effacing and modest to a fault. There's a history to that, you know, sad, I think. And, and, he, and he dislikes confrontation. Mm -hmm. He is extremely polite. He's very nice to be around, frankly. <laughs> but I, I'm not even sure what it means to call someone a saint. He hates being called a saint. It's one way of kind of, of pushing a person, what a person does aside. It's something to admire, but not to even imagine emulating what this wonderful nurse that trained him said to him is we don't want saints or zealots. We want just regular people who want to do, the, do a good job. Just try to make this a job that people like to do. And I think he's done that. You know, just to pause for a second over this. Imagine yourself... You have, you're so talented. I mean, he was a salutatorian of his class at Notre Dame and so on. You, you had a hard time pick, figuring out what you wanted to do. You finally figured out you really wanted to be a doctor. You go to school to be a doctor. You get really good at this art of medicine. And then you're, you're handed a bunch of patients who need you more than anyone else in the city mm. where you're working. <laughs> no one else needs doctors like they do. And you're able to provide that, and, and, you know, along with your colleagues, to invent a whole system for providing medicine. That's probably better medicine, by the way, that, than the middle class gets in Boston. And and they're tremendously grateful for it. It sounds like a pretty good job to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it requires a saint to do it. I really don't. You know, it's it was a demanding job and, and all that. But some people really like working hard. And some people really like working hard serving other people. It, it, I, I suppose ultimately that's a selfish act. It makes you feel good. But, it, but you know, I, I just think the saintly stuff is, is nonsense. Now, there's a big difference. He and Paul Farmer were friends, by the way. Wow. Well, Paul was younger, but they sometimes were on panels together. And Paul would say, poor Jim, he never got more than a mile away from where he went to medical school. And then Paul would add, but he deals with the same things I see in Haiti, yeah. you know, Rwanda, Peru, you name it. Paul the, Farmer, and, and, born in North Adams, I believe, right? Yes, he was. Yeah, so there's a but, connection there, but, too. Right, but what Paul was saying is is that homelessness in Boston, this horror exists right here. 
in the in the shadows of these great medical institutions of ours. But I wanted to say something else about Paul and Jim. Jim hates being called a saint. Both were guys were often called saints. Pa- Paul kind of liked it. <laughs> uh, Paul has passed away, so I do believe hope. I hope that uh, he has found his sainthood uh, in the great beyond, and I have no doubt that if anybody has, it's probably <laughs> probably Doctor well, Paul Farmer. He, he did a he did a huge amount for poor people in the world. Coming up, more with Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Western Mass, Tracy Kidder. We'll hear about his take on the concept of housing first and why it's not always the answer people are looking for when trying to end homelessness. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Speaking with Tracy Kidder, the author of Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. You've said when we were looking for a passage to read that there's nothing simple about anything we could excerpt, but I think that you've done a really good job of simplifying something that is a pretty complicated problem into some base components. And for those who haven't necessarily read the whole thing, what are some of those base components that I think are really easy to identify with? I think that this dovetails a little bit with your criticism of uh, Housing First. Well, let me just explain. I, I, I think Housing First is a wonderful idea. You know, it has served some people really well. But what the problem is, Housing First is based on two basic principles. One is get people housed. But the other one is support them. Homeless people in America represent a huge spectrum. There are many people who just need housing and and would do just fine as long as the housing is decently situated. Bad housing can be lethal too. Mm, And we know that from from that wonderful study, that awful study that was done in Boston some, some time ago where, you know, if you go from one subway station in Charles Street to the subway station in Mattapan, if you take those regions, you lose about 30 years of life expectancy. You have a similar uh, problem know, in Springfield, too, with like yes. the mold issues and the and the, the air quality issues. But well, I guess what I'm saying is that with decent housing, most people who experience homelessness at some time or other during a period of the, a year would do fine, probably. But there is this other, there's this group of chronically homeless people, and especially those who choose to sleep outside, a very small group in Boston, but a very endangered group and a very large group in most other locales. Those people, in many cases, you know, have really uh, honed skills for living outside, but coming inside is really, really difficult for them. One difficulty is if you have a substance use disorder, as it's called, if you're addicted to heroin or now fentanyl, when you come inside, that doesn't end. Loneliness takes over. Jim and his wife, when, when, after the introduction of Housing First enabled them to get some of their rough sleepers housed, kept going to places where patients had died. And in some cases, that was a good deal because those patients were very sick. That was a good outcome. But in many cases, it was unexpected and it was daunting. And it made, I think it made Jim and his team uh, realize that you can't have one without the other, really, if you're, particularly if you're dealing with chronically homeless people. You need, they need a lot of support. It, it is remarkable how you describe some of these uh, these rough sleepers, as you, that you call them in your book, Tracy Kidder, rough sleepers, who are spending the majority of their time outside. And then when they do receive homes, sometimes they've done things like set up a tent inside yeah. their home because that's the, the life that they know. So people who aren't as ensconced in this world and studying the, the perils of homelessness and the dangers of it might just think, get them a house 
get them going and that's it. But there are no simple solutions that seem to come from this book. While it's a delightful book in so many ways, getting to know the characters like Dr. Jim O'Connell or like Tony, the character of Tony that you describe mm -hmm. from the North End, there's no simple solutions for any of them. It just feels like the work is the work. Medicine is not the solution to homelessness. Any solution to homelessness would be, you know, would have to start with enormous uh, increase in amount of housing available. Housing is essential, not sufficient. The, Jim's program does, and, and his street team do a lot of work on housing, but it's not really their job and they can't take it all on. And in a town like Boston, as in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, you name it, gentrification, at least the enormous rise in, in housing prices has made it much, much more difficult to get people housed. And all of that said, there are so many other things that feed chronic homelessness, you know, from the criminal justice system to bad educational systems, almost non-existent system for dealing with mental health, awful child abuse. I mean, you see all of these things, all of this in the histories of, uh, of these patients. The one thing I will say, however, that medicine can do and that the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program is doing admirably, I think, is relieving misery. Hmm. We're relieving some of the worst misery in, in the city. And that's never, that's never a waste of time. I remember the other night I was signing books with Jim at, uh, in Brookline and uh, a couple came up. Jim was dealing with someone else and they were talking to me and they said that, the man said that his brother had been homeless and had died. And I, you know, began talking to him about that. He said he didn't really know what the basic problem had been, but he then sort of gestured toward Jim and he said, but I'll tell you one thing, that man made my son, my brother's life infinitely better than it had been. And I, you know, I think that's, that's something worth remembering. <laughs> what's going on in the world now, what's going on in America? I mean, there are a lot of really interesting projects being undertaken. A lot of really good and dedicated people are working to try to do something about this, what I think of as a national disgrace. And I think, as Jim once put it, What's going to be necessary is a mosaic of efforts. Medicine would be one, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that has to be done. I think that if we ever did get homelessness stopped, and, and I mean both the creation of new homelessness and, and, and dealing with the people, I mean, helping the people who already are homeless, getting them out of this dilemma, we would have a fundamentally better country. I, I don't know that we're on that kind of track right now, but it, it's, it's nice to imagine, I guess. In the meantime, I mean, what Jim put it once was, this is what we do while we're waiting for the world to change. Speaking with Tracy Kidder, the author of Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. There is an interesting sense of community, again, in the way we don't necessarily think about it in this book with the unhoused people and with the work that Dr. Jim is doing. Can you speak to that community just a little bit? A little bit. I think one of the biggest burdens of homelessness. One of the great afflictions is loneliness. By and large, and by the way, one of the reasons I don't use terms like unhoused much or talk about people experiencing homelessness is I think they understate the, how awful this, this problem is. To some degree, that sounds like fairly comfortable intellectuals finding delicate ways to describe other people's suffering and without actually doing much for those other people. But leaving that aside, I mean, loneliness is an enormous problem maybe a lonely, enormous problem in America, but it's particularly big for homeless people, particularly once they get housed. A lot of times, and Jim's patients would get evicted from their first housing because they'd invite all their friends inside. Hmm. It was so lonesome in there. Like, as you said, you know, there was this one fellow who 
just couldn't sleep. So he went outside and he made a recording of all the noises of the streets at night. And he would use that as his lullaby. One wonderful woman I wrote about who had been out in the streets for, you know, off and on for 30 years, just couldn't figure out what to do inside. She would talk to her refrigerator, she said. You know, I could tell you story after story of that sort. But, you know, they're not different from many other people. They're pretty gregarious. And out on the street, they do have a community, a raucous community sometimes. And it's also, they can get into terrible uh, fights now and then. The fellow I wrote about, Tony, was was the glue, I felt, among a whole bunch of the rough sleepers in Jim's patient panel. I, I remember one day when he was trying to locate somebody, uh, the mother of some kid who had just left her kid in this place where all the all the rough sleepers were hanging out, Mousy Park. Well, he made a call to one guy, you know, somewhere downtown, who called another guy who called another guy. There was this, there was this incredible web of uh, people who all knew each other, and they had cell phones actually um tony never was able to keep one for long so you know you sense that there was a really quite a a community there and there were other occasions when that became really obvious and and many of those people the real center was jim and jim and his team not just jim i'm afraid that's one of the errors of my book but it's sort of necessary ones that i make it seem like he's the whole the whole deal i well, I think I you do a, you a, an excellent job in the book of not just shining a light on Jim. I, there's a tremendous amount of a light shined on uh, Barbara McInnes, who yes. even goes on to have uh, a shelter named after her, after her passing, how influential she was on the life of Dr. Jim, and how you can see how uh, Dr. Jim's interactions with this community that you just spoke of, with maybe Tony as like the linchpin connecting the rough sleepers together. It's a, a remarkable a glimpse and a beautifully written snapshot into a very hard issue that there is no easy solutions that come through in the book. But the one thing that really stuck out to me about Dr. Jim O'Connell in particular was that bartending was the school where <laughs> where Jim learned most of what he needed to know about how to interact with this community, apart from the medicine that he then brought to the community, that that was what gave him an entree into this community that had otherwise not wanted to participate with the medical system. It was part of it. I mean, he, he will say that, that one of the things he's very good at is listening. He claims he learned that while being a bartender. That may well be true. I think he probably had some predisposition for it anyhow, but he will say that uh, bartending was the perfect training for this job. He said, because if you're not, if you're not willing to sit and listen to people who are talking at you uh, for quite a while, not always coherently, you know, you can't do this job. Facts. I like it. You know, it's a perfect, perfect training. Exactly. Tracy Kidder is the literary journalist who won the Pulitzer Prize for the 1981 book Soul of a New Machine. His new book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. Tracy Kidder will be doing an in-person reading on Tuesday, April 18th at 7 p.m. at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. Thank you so much, Tracy. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you again. It's Live Music Friday. Coming up, Flora Reed and Philip Price from The Winter Pills. They play at the Parlor Room in Northampton on Monday. And they play the Parlor Room in Northampton for you in just a minute. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. On Fridays, we like to have live music by the studio. It's been really fun since we started this show back in February, but... This week, our studio is being deconstructed so that it can move down the road to our new home on 44 Hamden. So 
So hopefully we'll have live music live in the actual studio again next Friday. But instead, this time, we decided to come to somebody else's home base and studio. We're at the Parlor Room in Northampton with Flora and Philip of the Winter Pills. Flora Reed, Philip Price, who are playing Monday in this very room with Great Lake Swimmers. Yeah, it's going to be a good time, I think. I think so, too. Can we hear a song, you two? Thanks for doing this. Oh, you're very welcome. We'd love to. Our pleasure. (laughs) We're going to do one that's... um... This is from a solo record I did during the pandemic when the band couldn't do much, but we've been playing it as kind of a duo anyway. Yeah, and you, uh, we should mention, you are a married duo, so it was really We're easy for duo. you to um, to have a COVID kind of bub- bubble, right? I mean, yeah, we nothing were... was easy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we're a duo opening on, on Monday for, with Great Lake Swimmers, so this will be, yeah. you know, we'll probably, we'll probably play, this. play this one. Yay! All lies.
do you shift tone between the songs that you write for Winter Pills, the songs that you write for yourself, and the songs that you write as a duo? I just kind of decide they're going to go in one box or another. Or I will like really push yeah. and say, you know, yeah. I'd like to uh, take this song. Could I do that? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that said, right now I'm, I'm really actively trying to write songs for the band, which the band hasn't really gotten around to yet. We're getting to it soon, but we have plans. But um, exciting! Yeah, it's exciting because, you know, you mentioned jokingly when we came here, it's nice to be doing things like this again. Oh, yeah. It's one thing when you're married to somebody in the band and you're going to focus on a duo thing, but right. when the band can all actually get back together safely, it's a great thing. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in knowing, you both had solo careers or you were both in other bands before Winter Pills, and I always forget, and forgive me because we've known each other for a very, very long time now, as, but what came first, the Winter Pills or the relationship? Mm. Uh, winter Pills. Yeah, yeah. But just barely. Uh -huh. By like a few weeks. Yeah. Or no, you were with Dave and Dennis. You guys were considered no, Winter Pills. The first Winter Pills gig didn't have Flora in it. And we did like two shows with, without Flora. But I, I think the first one wasn't even called Winter Pills. It was just Philip Solo something with backing musicians. And then it was Winter Pills. And then you joined. And we had the first gig with you, which was at the Brass Cat in East Hampton. And that was the first full band with you. And I just remember being like very special night. Like it really just kind of cemented everything to be doing that live in front of everybody. So were you like, this like is my new girlfriend really and now she's part of the band? Well, How did that go? no, we, no, band first. A little first. on again, off yeah. again And thing. then we were like, maybe is it the best idea for us to like be a couple? And we tried to put the brakes on it for like two we weeks. We, we made a political decision, like, you know. This is gonna be our like last date. Let's like go to see Magnetic Fields. At the oh, garden. nice! That's a good last date. And she, she made I'll her make amazing you frittata. Made and then frittata. we saw Magnetic Fields, and and by the and end of that night, we're like, eh, let's just keep yeah, going. No, I yeah. that doesn't sound like a last date to me. No. Yeah. Sounds kind of like a regular theory. middle date. Exactly. Yeah. That's the plywood ramp to getting comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and now you have a four-year-old who's in the other part of the parlor room hanging out with yeah, us. He's here. right over there watching the. Yeah. Who rolled over for the first time in this very room. Oh my god. On West, camera. On that stage. Wow. For a, a video that yeah, you were for, shooting for that all, um, Khalees was um, in. Come on, world. Also worth noting, Parlor Room is the home base of Signature Sounds Records, which grew out of the offshoot of the radio station we were previously at, WRSI, when Jim Olsen left there, started this record label. Tons of wonderful bands that you've heard of have come out of that record label, and more to come this year. Moved from his house to this downtown location in Northampton that was also a listening space, and now has morphed into a, a co-op. But your offices of Signature Sounds, where both of you also work, are in the same building. Yeah, talk about all your eggs in yeah. one basket. It's like a, <laughs> a large basket. Did you get involved in Signature Sounds because you were on the label, or was it the other way around? I've, I've been at Signature Sounds for a very long time, and I had worked. I'd worked at the label for two or three years before Winter Pills recorded our first album. Jim was like, "I'd love to check it out," and he listened to it, and then. He gave us a record deal back when there were still record deals with advances. <laughs> yeah, all right. All of that. And we went to it's a we, lot more informal now. We all went to Packers and like no celebrated our <laughs> first advance. But for Reed and Philip Price of Winter Pills, who will be performing as a duo with Great Lake Swimmers in the very room where we're recording this live music Friday for the Fabulous 413. The parlor room in Northampton on <laughs> Monday. You just announced the dates for the Arcadia Folk Festival, but that's the third festival that Signature Sounds produces. You want to talk about all of the awesome things you bring into the area? I'm also a publicist at Signature Sounds, and so we produced the Green River Festival, the Back Porch Festival, which had a whole new format this year. 
usually we just have shows here and at the Academy and maybe one other place, but this year we did nine venues in town and it was like a little mini South by. It went Loud great. Festival is more like a quiet festival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Loud Festival was before people. my time, so I don't really know right. what that festival was. It was the, the Loud Festival. It was a old rock festival all around Northampton and kind of people running around the streets like I gotta get from one venue it to was another. fun to watch that people running around the streets yeah, in Northampton it, like it felt really it vibrant was, and it was in the great. cold yeah. weather too so yeah so yeah back porch Green River and then um, yes Arcadia Folk Festival which is one of my favorite days of the year it's at the beautiful Arcadia Wildlife Sanctuary in East Hampton it's been beautiful. You bring some really fantastic acts for all of those, and you can see some of that at SignatureSoundsPresents.com. And, you know, put it on your calendar. Get ready to see all the really cool things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we are looking at the, the banners of Parlor Room's past, and you had an interesting assessment of one of the particular posters from a year past on here. You're, this is the second time that you're playing with Great Lakes swimmers. Uh, yeah, well, here. So we did a tour with them in Canada in 2014, I think it was. It was really fun, and they're lovely folks. Tony's a sweet guy and a really talented songwriter, and um, we're looking forward to seeing him again. We haven't seen him for a good while. You know, the, this horrible gap, the pandemic gap. There were many plans that never came to fruition, including doing more shows with them. So it's going to be really nice to see our Canadian buddies again. Yeah. <laughs> well, should we hear another song? We should absolutely hear another song. We're having Live Music Friday at the Parlor Room on the Fabulous 413 today with Laura Reed and Philip Price. Isn't it wine o'clock? Damn it. Where are we? Oh, yeah. Well, we've already been there, done that. <laughs> Today? Yes. <laughs> so this is one of those songs I mentioned where this yeah. is from our, our last full band album, uh, Love Songs. You sang lead on it. 2016, and then, wow. which is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. We all lost a few years in there, didn't we? <laughs> More than a few, I think. And then just recently I advocated for changing it yeah, up and, just, and said, could I it. just sing it? Just, and, I'm taking this one. They're like, sure.
Flora Reed and Philip Price of Winter Pills playing at the parlor room where we are right now on Monday with Great Lake Swimmers. Another shout out to the time Philip Price came out on one of our early shows to do a polar plunge. Did you go back again? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would. <laughs> Thanks for doing this with us. Oh, anytime. Thanks for great having fun. Thanks again to Philip and Flora from the Winter Pills. You can hear a bonus track of them covering a song from the band Low if you follow NEPM on social media. Next week in the fabulous 413, 420 is on the way. So we'll get into the weeds with Six Bricks Cannabis of Springfield about the industry and equity and their award-winning strains. You might be hungry after that, so Pizza Quest Volume 3 hits the Berkshires. And illustrator Jarrett Krasoska joins us to chat about his latest graphic memoir, Sunshine, and his live reading at the Academy of Music Northampton. Of which Monty will be a part. Our director yeah. is Tony, lifting boxes and taking names done. Our engineer is Betsy, trapped on Main Street forever, Cordis. Our technical trio. Oh, that's so terrible. But so true. <laughs> Our technical team is Bart, out of phase, Rankin, Kara, the Eye of the Storm Foster, and Punk Rock Dubay, holding it down. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Mal Devisa, Gaslight Tinker, Suitcase Junket, Tina Turner, and Winter Pills. I'm Police Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you on Monday on the Fabulous 413.